This morning, we are embarking on a new series called Preparing for Battle. Have you ever wondered why opposition arises where the church flourishes? Have you ever noticed that spiritual opposition always arises where Christians faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ? The pattern of Satan's opposition began in the life of our Lord. It actually began in the garden, but we'll go for the church and the life of our Lord. And at the outset of his earthly ministry, Satan severely attacked him for 40 days. His direct attack on our Lord culminated at Calvary. Yet he continue, continues to attack God's people wherever the name of Christ is proclaimed. We see this pattern of attack in the church. You see, Satan violently attacked the first century church in every conceivable way. In Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church, the men of Judea accused the disciples of being drunk. In Acts chapter 4, after Peter and John healed a lame beggar in the temple, they were jailed by the temple guard and the Sadducees. In Acts chapter 5, abundant grace was upon the church when a couple lied to the Holy Spirit about the sale of a piece of property. You see, that pattern of attack repeats itself over and over. We see it throughout the book of Acts, and we see it even beyond. He continues to attack God's people anytime they commit themselves to live according to His Word. His attacks may come from within, or they may come from the outside, but the pattern never changes. You see, Satan does not abandon his playbook. The epistles themselves were written to churches that had flourished and were under attack by the enemy. As an example, Paul wrote the letter to the church at Ephesus to encourage and strengthen them to withstand Satan's fiery arrows. We can be assured that any church that unapologetically preaches the gospel will be attacked by the forces of darkness. Therefore, as we continue to commit ourselves here at Grace Bible Church to preach the gospel unashamedly, this church will be attacked. These attacks could come from within. There may be even false teachers who arise from within. Acts 20, in Acts 20, Paul warned the church at Ephesus that that would happen. There could even be squabbles among the members. This happened with two women in the Philippian church. They were disturbing the whole church, and Paul indicated to them that their struggle, their personal struggle between these two women was affecting the whole church. Other times, these attacks from Satan can come from the outside. In Acts 19, we find that Demetrius opposed Paul's preaching because it was damaging his business. You see, he was a silversmith, in Ephesus, who made silver shrines of Artemis. He gave business to many of, uh, many of the workmen around, and therefore, as the church grew in strength, sales of these idolatrous shrines fell. fell. Therefore, he stirred up other workmen <coughs> to oppose Paul's ministry. So while Satan hates a gospel-proclaiming church that's full of life, be assured, he, he wants our churches to be dead and lifeless. He has no problem with a church with dead orthodoxy that has lost its love for Christ. He will be hands-off with a church that preaches an errant gospel. He absolutely adores a church that tolerates sexual immorality. He will gladly leave alone any church that does good works in its own strength. And he will not bother too much with a lukewarm church that's neither hot nor cold. But we must be aware that Satan hates churches, and we've said this already, that Satan hates churches that preach the gospel and suffer for the name of Christ. In the words of Peter, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, lion seeking someone to devour. But these truths should cause us as a church to pause and ask, how do we avoid being devoured by by that enemy of old? Thankfully, Scripture answers this question for us. As we cover this new section of Paul's letter to Ephesus, we'll find the answer to this question and more. Now, before I start, I want to give a warning. This warning is from the preface of C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters. He says this, There are two two equal and opposite errors into which our race, men, can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. 
The other is to believe in their existence and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They sometimes, they themselves are equally pleased, the, the devils, are equally pleased with both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight, end quote. Church, I hope this series will correct any errant thoughts that we have about the power of Satan and his demonic realm. Now, as we get started this morning, I should tell you that we'll take some time to, to give quite a bit of critical background and review to help us understand Paul's words here in Ephesians 6. So let me, let me pray for us, and then I'm going to read the text, and then we'll get started in, into the text. Gracious Lord, we thank you this morning again. We trust in your mighty power. Father, we understand that we have an enemy. Lord, but that enemy is nowhere near, nowhere near as powerful as you. Father, we don't want to take him lightly. But at the same time, we should understand that you have already, he's already a defeated foe. Father, may we see that this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Start with, read with me in Ephesians 6, 10 through, through 12. We're not going to read the entire section this morning. They, really, the entire section goes through verse 20. Paul writes, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. I'll, I'll add verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything to stand firm. On April 14th, 1865, President Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. On the following morning, New York City was the scene of a gathering of citizens bent on revenge. Placards were put up in New York, Brooklyn, Jersey City, calling upon loyal citizens to meet around Wall Street, the Wall Street Exchange around 11 o'clock. Thousands came, armed with revolvers and knives, ready to avenge the death of the president. 50,000 men gathered there, the blood boiling with the fires of patriotism and revenge. A portable gallows was carried through the crowd, lifted above their heads. The bearers chanted, Vengeance! Vengeance! as they went. The prospect was that the offices of the world, a disloyal journal and some prominent sympathizers of the rebellious South would be swallowed in the raging sea of passion. The wave of popular indignation was further inflamed by fiery speeches throughout the day. In an instant of fury, the crowd was whipped up, bent on vengeance and death upon every paper and every man opposed to Abraham Lincoln. The horrors of the French Revolution seemed poised to play out on the streets of New York on that day. This was bound to happen until General James A. Garfield, the future president of the United States, stepped forward to speak to the mob. And he said this. Well, the crowd cried. Another telegram from Washington. And you might have heard a pen drop as every listener held his breath to hear. Lifting his right arm toward heaven, in a clear, distinct, and steady voice, Garfield began to speak. He says this, Fellow citizens, clouds and darkness are round about him. His pavilion is dark waters in the thick clouds of the skies. Justice and judgment are the habitation of his throne. Mercy and truth shall go before his face. Fellow citizens, God reigns, and the government of Washington still lives. Now his short speech, which incorporated the words of Psalm 97.2, had a remarkable effect on the crowd. In the words of one witness, as the boiling wave subsided, subsides and settles to the sea when the strong wind beats it down, so, so the tumult of the people sank and became still. 
As the rod draws the electricity from the air and conducts it safely to the ground, so this man had drawn the fury from that frantic crowd and guided it to a more tranquil thought from that of vengeance. Now, as this story clearly illustrates, Scripture is powerful and can calm a rushing crowd bent on revenge. But I th- and I think the this, this story illustrates the sovereignty of God in every situation throughout history. In this instance, the direction of our nation could have been altered forever in that moment. The story also shows that unbelieving men love vengeance. They are swift to revenge when we feel, we are swift, that is, when we feel that we have been done wrong. In the words of Romans 3.15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. See, these verses describe unbelieving men. But as crazy as these situations may be, there's another spiritual reality that we cannot see behind them. Behind the reality of flesh and blood stands the reality of the spiritual forces of darkness. In this story, we see how crowds can be whipped into a frenzy, but the satanic presence behind these situations is is even a greater reality. Fleshly men can react in anger and revenge to these incitements. They, they want to go on the uh, offensive to snuff out the enemy. Yet God calls the believer to a completely different response to opposition, especially spiritual opposition. If anyone understood spiritual opposition, it was the Apostle Paul. The truth is that satanic opposition followed Paul everywhere he went. His time in Ephesus was no different. Now, as we approach this passage, Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, this morning, I think we should get some background of Paul's history and relationship with the church at Ephesus from Acts 18 and 19. So if you want to turn to Acts 18, we'll pick up there. In Acts 18, Luke records that Paul traveled to Ephesus with Priscilla and Aquila, but left them there to, to minister now, while he was away, Priscilla and Aquila met Apollos and explained to him the way of, the God, of God more accurately. It says that at the end of chapter 18. And Apollos actually, Apollos actually went to Corinth. So Paul had left, and Priscilla and Aquila were there, and they taught Apollos, and Apollos went to Corinth. Now, starting in Acts 19, Luke tells us that Paul returned to Ephesus on his third missionary journey. Now, When he arrived in the city, he found a group of people who had been baptized into John's baptism. Uh, So John, or so Paul baptized them in the name of the Lord Jesus, and they miraculously miraculously received the Holy Spirit. Now, according to Acts 19:7, there were all about 12 men. Now, after this, and in verses 8 and 9, Paul preached in the synagogue for about three months before some became hardened and began speaking evil of the way. Then Paul began to teach the disciples, those 12 men, daily in the school of Tyrannus for about two years. Now that would have been the beginnings of the church at Ephesus. Now during that time, the, the gospel began to spread from Ephesus throughout Asia Minor. Now it was during that two-year period that several churches were planted in the province. You see, you see Ephesus was having a great effect on all of, of the territory around. Now let's pick up in Acts 19, 11, and 12. In verse 11, it says that God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that the handkerchiefs and aprons were even, being, were even carried from his body to the sick, and diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out. Now during Paul's time, he performed these extraordinary miracles to confirm that he was God's messenger. Now let's keep reading in verses 13 through 15. It says, But also some Jewish exorcists who went from place to place attempted to name over those who had the evil spirits the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul preaches. Now it it goes on to say, Seven sons of one Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. And and get this, this is this verse. And the evil spirit answered and said to them, I recognize Jesus, and I know about Paul, but who are you? This story should be quite eye-opening to us. You see, we should never mistake 
that the demonic powers are ever-present. They are ever-present and they know, they personally know, God's people, and they, and they especially know those who faithfully proclaim the gospel. As we said, in Ephesus, they were having great effect on all the, the territories around. And he cares nothing, as we said earlier, for those churches who don't faithfully preach his word. Uh, Robert Murray McShane says, I know well that when Christ is nearest, Satan also is busiest. Brethren, Christ is nearest when we proclaim his word. Now look back at the text. The evil spirit knew Paul and his ministry because Paul was a faithful minister of the gospel. In Acts 19, 16-17, in a very funny section, it says, And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, or leapt onto them, and subdued all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house, out of that house, naked and wounded. That was pretty embarrassing, wasn't it? This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks, who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and on the name of the Lord Jesus, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Now, as I've said, that's a pretty humorous story, uh, that may be one of the funniest stories in all of Scripture, but I don't want you to miss the true punchline. Notice the text says that the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Church of the demonic world, again, will not stand idle when a church magnifies the name of the Lord Jesus. This was very true with the church at Ephesus, and it will be true with Grace Bible Church of Gainesville if we continue to magnify the name of Christ. Pick back up in Acts 19.18. It says, Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. Now again, we see the word of the Lord is prevailing. Therefore, spiritual opposition cannot be far behind. Pick up in verse 21. In verse 21, Paul says that Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem and Rome, but stayed in Asia for a while longer. And in verse 23, it says this, About that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man, and I mentioned this in the introduction, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These men he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades and said, Men, you know that our, our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia. Remember, he's planting church. Plant, churches are being planted. The gospel is going forth throughout Asia. Uh, this Paul then has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall in disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. When they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is, the, is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now, remember my, my introduction about the situation in New York uh, with Abraham Lincoln. We can be assured that behind this crowd was a demonic presence. As I've said, when the gospel is proclaimed and the name of the Lord is magnified and the word of the Lord is taught, the demonic world sees these things as an open assault. And as you read through Acts and the, Paul, Paul, the Pauline, Pauline epistles, uh, one thing becomes clear. Paul's proclamation of the, of the gospel created an uproar wherever he went. This was certainly the case in Ephesus. You see, the, the magnificent temple of Artemis, or Diana, was located in the city when Paul established the church there. The temple, just to give you some history, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Ephesus was probably best known in the ancient world for this temple. The temple, with its associated pagan worship, dominated life in the city. As you can tell... This pagan temple then forms a critical backdrop to understanding the spiritual warfare that goes on or did go on in that city. On, the, on a human level, pagan worship 
of false gods was pervasive in Ephesus as it was in the, in the ancient world. But we have to recognize that there's a, a, a whole spiritual, spiritual war or spiritual world that exists in concert with this pagan worship. Now, while we must be careful not to make too much of Satan's power, we can't fall for the lie that he doesn't exist. As I said, or as C.S. Lewis so eloquently said earlier in my sermon, the first step on the way to victory, according to Corey Ten Boom, is to recognize the enemy. And I would even go further to say that we need to rightly recognize the enemy. You see, we have an enemy of our souls. We must recognize him, and we must rightly respond to him. Now, as we've seen, Paul certainly faced much spiritual op- opposition. Even as he penned the letter to the Ephesians, he was in prison. In Acts 20, Luke records Paul's last visit to the Ephesian elders as he passed through Miletus on his way to Jerusalem. After he visited them, he told them, or during his visit, he told them that they would no longer see his face. He knew of the spiritual opposition that was against him, and and he knew that he wouldn't be able to return. Listen to his words in Acts 20, verse 26. If If you're still there, you can follow along. He says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. And he says this, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among, whom, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come from among you, from, come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. You see, the apostle intimately, personally understood that Satan would oppose the church. He knew that this opposition may even come or would even come from within the church itself. Now in Acts 21, Luke records that he left to go to Jerusalem. In 21.10, a prophet named Agabus came to Paul and prophesied that he would be bound and delivered into the hands of the Gentiles. But look at Paul's response if you were in Acts 21, verse 12. In that, in that verse he says this, or it says this, when, he, when he, we had heard this, we, as well as the local residents, began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking the will of the Lord be done. You see, you see Paul intimately trusted the Lord Jesus. He knew that even if he suffered, he was willing to suffer because he knew that he was in Christ. Now, after Paul arrived in Jerusalem, Luke tells us that the Jews from Asia accused Paul of bringing Greeks into the temple, defiling it. In Acts 21-29, it says that, for they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with him. So Trophimus being a Greek, Uh, they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Now, ultimately, Paul was arrested by the Roman officials because of the uproar that had been caused by the crowd thinking that Paul had taken this man into the temple. And Paul remained in in the custody of the Romans because they were afraid the crowd of the Jews would tear him to pieces. Now, eventually, down the road, Paul would even make an appeal to Caesar and remain in custody as an innocent man for several years, and ultimately would go to Rome, where he wrote Ephesians. That's the connection that I wanted you to understand. So, considering Paul's circumstances, even as he wrote this letter, if any man understood the schemes of the devil, it would have been the Apostle Paul. If any man had reason, though, to be bent on revenge, it would have been the Apostle Paul. Yet, Paul always trusted the Lord no matter his circumstances. In his letter to the Philippians, which he wrote during the same imprisonment in Rome around the same time as Ephesians, he said this, 
in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 12, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstance has, have tur- circumstances that is, have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. You see, Paul understood. The, the, Paul understood, and I think this verse illustrates that Paul was dependent upon God's power no matter his circumstances. Even though Paul was imprisoned as he wrote this letter to, to the Ephesians, he always saw the hand of God in his various situations. Now let me give you a, an example which ties back to the city and the church at Ephesus. I'm trying to, what I'm trying to set up here is that there is a long history in this church of spiritual opposition, which fits in with what Paul is saying in Ephesians chapter 6. Now later in his ministry, in his second letter to Timothy, this was right before his death, at the time Timothy had been pastoring at Ephesus, so we see the connection. In 2 Timothy 4.14, Paul warned Timothy about a man named Alexander the coppersmith. This man lived in Ephesus, apparently, and it says that, that Paul says that Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. Now, we don't know much about the story of Alexander except that he did Paul this harm. We don't even know exactly what this harm is, but we also, there, it may have been that he was an idol maker in Ephesus, and he may have been even part of those who were stirred up by Demetrius the silversmith. It's quite possible that this man had pursued Paul to harm him. He may have even been that messenger of Satan that Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. We just don't know. Now, there are two things that I want you to see from this story. First, you should notice that Paul says, the Lord will repay him. In in Romans 12, 19, Paul says much the same thing to the church at Rome. He says, never take... Your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. The second thing I want you to see. It seems that Paul feared that Timothy was weakening and it was in spiritual danger. The problem, the major problem was that Paul expected him to carry on the ministry. And in this letter, Paul encouraged Timothy to use the gifts of God that had been given in this letter of 2 Timothy. He also exhorted him to hold on to sound doctrine and to avoid error and and have his confidence in Scripture and to preach it without yielding. But as we have seen, when we do these things, when, when we obey those commands, opposition will come. Listen to Paul's words in 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. He says, Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Now, in that, and that's verse 3. In that verse, Paul tells Timothy to, that, to suffer for the name of Christ, for the name of Jesus. Now listen to his words in 2 Timothy 3, 10-12. Now, you followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance. He says this, persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch and at Iconium and at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, and out of them... Out of them all, the Lord rescued me. Then he says this, and this is, this is important for us. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's a promise. Now, as we have seen later in the letter, Paul warned Timothy about Alexander. So how do we reconcile Paul's promise of persecution with a warning to watch out for it. I think that's that balance that we need to have. And I think that we'll see that answer in this passage, Ephesians 6, 10 through 17. But let me put it this way. Brothers and sisters, if you hear nothing else from me this morning, we face a brutal enemy. He's an enemy not to be trifled with. Yet we have been given everything we need to, in our battle against him. In the words of A.W. Tozer, he says, I'm not afraid of the devil. Then he says, the devil can handle me. He's got judo I've never heard of. But he can't handle the one to whom I'm joined. He can't handle the one to whom I'm united. And I would add, he can't handle the one whose spirit dwells in me. Now, That was a long introduction to our text this morning. And 
It's going to get a little longer because we're going to do a little brief review of Ephesians. Uh, and as we quickly review the letter, I want to highlight Paul's references to the angelic realm. Now, as you may recall, in chapters 1 and 2, Paul reminded the church of the greatness of their salvation in Christ. In Ephesians 1.4, he told the church that Christ, or God, actually the Father, has chose us in Christ, in Him, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. Therefore, everything in the Christian life has been ordered so that we would come to Him. Not only has He saved us, though, that He makes very, very clear in verses 1 through 12, but in verses 13 and 14 of chapter 1, He has sealed us with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, that is significant because it proves that God will protect His people, that He has secured them, He has sealed them, He has secured them in the, with the Holy Spirit of promise, that proving that He will protect His people, His true people, as they live in this hostile world. Now, in Ephesians 1, 18-21, Paul prays for the Ephesians. And I want to read that prayer because I think it's important, it's crucial in our understanding of Ephesians 6, 10. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of His calling. He had told them that in the first 17 verses. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? And what is, get this, this is verse, I think this is verse 21, verse 20. And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. And then He says this. This is verse, this is verse 21. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Here's the point. Christ is everything. He is above all. In other words, Paul wanted them to understand the magnificent power which God displays toward us who believe. It is the same power which raised Christ from the dead and seated Him on the throne of God significantly He was raised up above all authority and all rule and all authority and power and dominion. And in this verse, what Paul is describing is the angelic realm, which includes the angels, God's holy angels, and the demonic realm. Now in Ephesians 2, 1-2, Paul says that Christians, you and I, if we believe in the Lord Jesus, have been rescued from the domain from from Satan's domain, from this domain of darkness through God's grace. In Ephesians 2.2, we walked before our salvation, we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Uh, Ultimately, we were of our father Satan. It's a hard truth, but it's true. Verse 7, He did all this, He saved us. He showed us mercy. He saved us by His grace through faith. Verse 7, So that in the ages to come, He might show the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. In other words, you and I, if we are in Christ, we are trophies of God's grace which He will display to the angelic realm in the ages to come. In Ephesians 3.10, we find that the manifold wisdom of God is made known to the angelic realm through the church. So you and I are a display of God's grace and and of His wisdom, and, and we are showing those authorities, we are showing them who God is, and we are showing His grace, and we are showing His wisdom. We're displaying it, if you will clearly by the time Paul gets to Ephesians 6.10. His letter and the history of this church clearly, vividly indicates that the Ephesians had a clear 
and I'll say the word vivid again, understanding of the spiritual realm. They truly recognized the dangerous nature of the enemy they faced. But they also understood that God had radically saved them and that they were fully secure in Christ. And and they must have realized the power of God toward those who believe. And as a result of that magnificent calling in Christ, according to Ephesians 4.1, Paul implored the church at Ephesus to walk worthy of that calling. And it's in those final three chapters that, that Paul describes that the calling with a series of, 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 describes this walk, that is, this worthy walk, which, with a series of walk statements which culminate in the call to walk in wisdom and not foolishness. He also called them significantly to be filled with the Spirit. And in doing so, he called the wives to submit to their husbands, the husbands to sacrificially love their wives, children to obey their parents, fathers to bring up their children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He also called slaves and masters to a transcendent relationship not based on on worldly standards. Yet, yet when Christians follow Christ, when Christians commit to commit to follow Christ in this radical way, Christians can expect Satan to oppose them. We can fully expect this or anticipate this demonic attack. Here in Ephesians 6, 10-20, then Paul calls the church at Ephesus to prepare for a great battle. Yet, this battle will be like no other. In these verses, Paul is going to give us three critical preparations, and we're going to go through them quickly this morning for demonic opposition to the church's mission. As you anticipate opposition, you are to prepare by placing your confidence in the right source, putting your trust in the required resources, and by pinpointing the reality of the enemy. Now that I've taken much time to introduce and set this up, let's look at these three critical preparations. First, you are to prepare by placing your confidence in the right, right source. Beloved, if we remain faithful as we have seen, we can expect spiritual opposition. Paul knew this, therefore he called the Ephesians in Ephesians 6.10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. This word finally could mean from now on, but major translations translate it finally. This indicates that, that Paul is beginning his final charge, his final exhortation to the church at Ephesus. In other words, considering everything that he has said up to this point in this letter, considering his ministry at Ephesus, considering his situation, he wants to give them one final charge. He tells them to be strong in the Lord. Now, this word has a passive sense and could be be translated, be strengthened in the Lord. Both the Holman Christian Standard Bible and the New English Translation translated this way. In other words, the believer's strength does not come from within the believer. It comes from an external source. Paul makes it very clear that the the believer's strength is derived from the Lord Himself. As we saw in chapter 1, the power that raised Christ from the dead is the same, the very same power that works within you and I. In Ephesians 1.19, Paul prayed that the church would know the surpassing greatness of his power toward those or toward us who believe. Church, this is, this is not an academic exercise. I, I'm not here to give you a dry lecture. If you are in Christ, you have access to the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Paul's call to the church is to place not to place your confidence in flesh and blood, neither in yourself or in others. He calls you to be strengthened in the Lord and in the strength of His might. You are to place your confidence in the right source for power. You are to place your confidence in the, in the right source for power. You are to place your confidence in Christ and Him alone. Second, Second of three critical preparations. You are to prepare by putting your trust in the requisite or right resources. Look at your text in verses in chapter 6, verse 11. Put on, the, put on the armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. 
Paul says put on. This, this word has the idea of putting on clothes. The Greek tense of the, of the word suggests that, it, that he is portraying a sense of urgency in the matter. It also indicates that the believer is fully responsible to put on this armor. Now that's a, that's a crucial point. Many, many Christians, many Christians, and I, I shudder to think that some of you have left themselves open for attack because they do not see the urgency. They do not recognize the imminent spiritual danger around them. In the aftermath of COVID-19, many Christians have fallen away from the church, never to return. They've chosen, they've chosen to separate themselves. Best case scenario, some of them have chosen to find their sustenance on the internet, to watch us, watch us live, or watch other churches live, or to, or to, or to listen to preachers. But what they don't understand is that they're in grave spiritual danger because they're not, they're not battling with the right clothes. Can you imagine going to war in a bathing suit with flip-flops? That's what they're doing. Brethren, with the language that Paul is employing, he is saying that we need to have a sense of urgency as we put on this armor. Now, we're going to discuss this, the armor of God more, more as we progress in this passage, but for now, we must recognize that we need God's armor for battle. This armor that He gives us is not physical in nature, but it's a spiritual armor. This armor has been provided by God for our protection in this spiritual battle. This armor is our only protection in spiritual warfare. Look at your text in Ephesians 6.11. Paul calls the Ephesians to put this armor on so, on so that you will be able to stand firm. Now it's interesting here that Paul tells them to stand firm. As we have seen, this is different from his call to walk. He had, he had, you know, these walk statements that he's been given. Instead of walk, he says to stand. And in terms of warfare, I take this to mean that we are not to go on the attack. And we're not to make any op offensive uh, maneuvers. When under attack by Satan, Paul calls for the believer to stop and to stand firm, to stand his ground. James says something very similar in James 4, 7. He says, Submit therefore to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Now look back at your text in 6, 11. You're standing firm against what? The schemes of the devil. We need to be aware that Satan does not usually hit the church with one grand scheme. But he will continually try to weaken us, weaken us through multi-pronged attacks. He will carefully, I'm telling you, carefully assess our weaknesses and He will ascend the appropriate assaults designed to maximize damage. Think of that church in Philippi. The, the two women that were, that were fighting each other. It's a weakness, right? They, they were, the Satan, was through their bickering, was attacking the unity of the church. You see, we must, as a church, recognize His strategies and that He is opposed to the truth. In the words of the Apostle John, he says, For the devil has sinned from the beginning. Then he goes on to say, The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. In John 8, 44, Jesus says that the devil, the devil was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Uh, whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. The believer, the believer must be mindful of the devil's schemes. Must be mindful that those schemes are based on lies and are designed, carefully crafted to deceive us. His schemes are designed to deceive and draw us away from the truth of God's word. As one Commentator has said, the devil is crafty in that he doesn't always attack through, the, through obvious head-on assaults, but employs cunning and wily stratagems designed to catch believers unawares. And it's worthy to note again, we're, told, we're not told to attack or to advance against Satan. We're told to put our armor on, on and stand firm. 
if we choose not to put this armor on and go it alone, and if we choose to go, or if we choose to go on the offensive, it is absolutely certain that we will be deceived and defeated by, the, by satanic forces. We can be assured that Satan has had millennia to perfect his various schemes. And if we don't prepare by placing our confidence in the right source and putting our trust in the required resources or the, or the right resources or the requisite resources, we will be deceived. Let me give you this third critical preparation. You are to prepare by pinpointing the reality of the enemy. Now, we can only look at this momentarily, but, and I'll take more time to break, break down this verse next week. But he says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. As I have shown you, we have seen this truth throughout Paul's letter. Uh, we've seen that truth in the history of, of Ephesus. We've seen that truth in the struggle that Paul was in, even as he pins the letter. You see, our true struggle, church, is not against men with flesh and blood. No, our, our struggle is against spiritual, the spiritual forces of wickedness. We can't see our enemy. Yet we can easily see our enemy's handiwork in a broken world all around us. We see, we see Satan's schemes played out everywhere we look. My wife and I have been watching a short, dramatic series set at the beginning of World War II. The series follows the lives of several people whose lives are woven together by various circumstances. But one storyline follows the lives of, of a couple in Berlin who had been befriended by an American reporter. This couple actually has a daughter in the show uh, with epilepsy. You see, the parents realized, as you, if you know history, that the Nazi party were systematically removing people with disabilities. They, they did this along with killing many, many Jews, which we know of, and other people who they thought were lesser. It was an evil, evil government. But here's what we need to recognize. This, we need to recognize the spiritual realities of these ideologies, that is. These spiritual, the spiritual reality which lead to human suffering and death. See, that, that we, saw, we see flesh and blood. We see Hitler. Or we see Stalin. Or, or any number of evil people who we would say uh, belong in hell. But in reality, behind them is something even greater that we can't see. Even today, it astounds me to see so many compromises in the church. So many have fallen for the schemes, that is, of the devil. In my opinion, our world today feels eerily similar to what was happening in Germany before World War II. It ought to cause you to stop and think. Beloved, we must as a church be ready for the satanic attacks on our churches and on our families. If there's one thing that I've learned through raising a family and pastoring a church, it is the reality the stark reality of wickedness and evil which exist in our world. We must prepare ourselves by placing our confidence in the right source, the power of God. We must prepare ourselves by putting our trust in the required resources, the full armor of God. We must prepare ourselves by pinpointing the reality of the enemy. It's not flesh and blood. It's not flesh and blood. Now as we close, I want to speak directly to those who don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. As it stands, as it stands, you are on the wrong team. Now you may think that you're good and that God will see your good works and save you. But that is one of Satan's oldest, oldest lies. Every false religion in the world is based on righteousness that is derived by our good works. Understand that. Every false religion is based on our good works because we 
Our flesh loves good works. In the words of Martin Luther, for where God built a church, there the devil would also build a chapel. If you're an unbeliever today, be deceived no longer. Be deceived no longer. Satan knows the gospel. And he hates it. And he twists it with his schemes. Beloved, the Apostle Paul says, All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. Not even one. This truth, he says again in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, if you believe that you are good enough, or if you believe that God doesn't exist, that He didn't create this world and all that's in it, you have been deceived. You have been deceived. You've been deceived by demonic lies. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, he says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might, might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. If you're here today and you don't know Him, you have been deceived. He has blinded your mind so that you might not see the light of the gospel true, simple gospel. The gospel that He is Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that you must be in Christ. And to be in Him, you must trust in His sinless life, His death on the cross, and His resurrection in power. Don't be deceived any longer. It's that simple. Don't be deceived any longer. Come to Christ. He stands ready to remove your guilt. He stands ready to take your burden of sin away. You only need to go to Him. As we finish, I encourage you to speak to one of the men. One of the men of this church. If there's anything said here today that the Lord has laid on your heart, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, pray that this body of Christ would put on Your armor. That we would not be deceived. That we would, in fact, continue to preach the Gospel. The Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to those who have been blinded, to those who have been deceived, so that they may come to truly know You. And it's in the name of your, the mighty name of your Son that we pray. May His name be magnified even today. Our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God.